Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is November the 26th. 2021, a Friday, Black Friday in the United States, the day after Thanksgiving, the day dedicated to consumption, to general selfishness. Uh, earlier today, uh, for, the, for our really loyal listeners, um, we had an interview with a couple of guys, written an interesting piece in the Harvard Business Review about the uncertainty of our contemporary world. Um, they say that there are they wrote in, in, in the Harvard Business Review that we're, we're on the precipice of, of not one, but three converging, potentially catastrophic long-term trends. Climate change, globalization, and growing inequality. Um, so it was a kind of warning. Uh, those are abstractions, but um, the... Converging these converging catastrophes of climate change, globalization, and inequality uh, can also be manifested, I think, in concrete ways. Think of a, a town like Baltimore on the east coast of the United States, uh, the capital or the largest city um, in Maryland. Uh, the headline yesterday in the Baltimore Sun uh, after a 69-year-old church member was murdered, was that the city again has surpassed 300 homicides. Uh, it has uh, Baltimore has the worst income inequality uh, in Maryland. It's a place of, of terrible racial inequality. It's a piece uh, I found um, uh, about... Uh, Black borrowers and depositors finding considerable challenging in accessing banking services in the city. Um, so, so Baltimore has always sort of epitomized. It's been the, the paradigm, the model, if that's the right word, for what's gone wrong in the American city. Joe Biden, the American president, is, of course, uh, intimately associated with Biden and uh, not with Biden, with Baltimore. Uh, and a couple of weeks ago, he stopped in Baltimore um, to lay out his new infrastructure uh, agenda for uh, big government reform of America. One wonders, though, whether Baltimore, here we have the Wikipedia page for Baltimore, whether Baltimore is really reformable from above. Perhaps a better way to change Baltimore and indeed to confront these multiple crises of the early 21st century is from below. Uh, I am speaking today with a man from Baltimore, a uh, guy called uh, Tibalt Manikin. He has a new book out, Larger Than Life. Uh, and he is, amongst other things, a social entrepreneur who is dedicating his life to reforming. Baltimore, not from above, not like Joe Biden, but from below. Uh, Thibaut, welcome to Keen On. Andrew, thank you for having me. It's it's an honor to be able to spend this hour with you. Well, you better be good, Thibaut, because otherwise you won't get an hour. Uh, actually, I'm joking. If you're really good, uh, you'll get much less than an hour. These things drag on if you're not very good, but I'm sure you're going to be excellent. Um, Thibaut, 
this is this show is as much about Baltimore as it is about your book, um, larger than yourself. And of course, Baltimore is larger than all of ourselves. Give me a snapshot of Baltimore in November, late November 2021. How much does it conform to the stereotype of profound inequality, crime, rampant injustice, which we have outside Baltimore? Is it the the model for that? Look, it's a great question, Andrew, and it's one that I wrestle with every single day. Um, I, uh, I grew up here. I love this city. And unfortunately, we are the city of the wire. You familiar with that TV show? Yes, of course. I, I forgot to include a a slide of the wire, but for many people, Baltimore is indeed the wire, and the wire is Baltimore, a show about um, crime, violence, and drugs. Yeah, so the wire is twenty some years old, I think, maybe, um, and it depicts Baltimore in the worst possible light. And I think we have spent. It, it's kind of how the world knows us, and I think that we've spent the majority of the last twenty years trying to shed that perception that that's the city that we are because we're not um we have our fair share of struggles like all all cities um but for example during the uh the freddie gray uprising um uh in 2015 i got so many calls from friends really from around the world are you going to be are you okay is your house on fire um uh is is the city burning down the way that it's being portrayed in in the in the media um, and there's just this perception from the outside world that, that our city has no hope. And it, I think it's the complete opposite, um, especially when you're on the ground doing the important work. Thibaut, your, your new book, uh, which came out earlier this week, Larger Than Yourself, Reimagine Industries, Lead with Purpose and Grow Ideas into Movements. Um, it asks why some great ideas take off while others don't. Is a book, it's not in any way narcissistic, but it is a book about your life. Um, your your intimacy with, with Baltimore, the fact you grew up there, and then you left, and then you came back. So perhaps very briefly, Thibaut, tell me about your life, of how you began in Baltimore, then you left, and then you came back. Yeah, so I grew up in, in Baltimore City, and from a very young age, I had two questions come into my heart. The first one was, why are we so divided as human beings? And the other was, what are some creative ways that we can bridge those divides? And those questions continued to grow as I went through high school and eventually through college. And when I left after college, I had this opportunity with two friends to start an international nonprofit called Peace Players. And the idea is that we would go to war-torn countries and we would use sports to get kids from two sides of a conflict, meeting each other, finding common ground, and hopefully over time becoming friends. We raised maybe seven or $8,000 from friends and family very early on. I guess I was 22 at the time, which was enough to go to South Africa and test this concept out. Were you fleeing Baltimore, do you think, in retrospect? Or was this just the, the natural um, urge to travel, to see the rest of the world? Look, my mom's from France, um, and she raised us with this understanding that the world's an, an amazing, massive, beautiful place, and that we needed to understand it outside of the bubbles that we grew up in. Um, and so I'd always been had this desire to get out of Baltimore, right, to see what was on the other side um, and, to, and to live overseas. And this Peace Players opportunity was the perfect chance to kind of test that out, you know, test the waters and 
one, see what I was made of, um, and two, kind of test this concept and continue to be in service of these two burning questions of you know, why are we so divided and what are creative ways to bridge those divides. This so, division, uh, Thibault, has been a perpetual theme on the show. Recently, we had the sociologist Peter Coleman on talking about how we can come together in America. But Peace Players originally, uh, your nonprofit initiative, was... Um, was began in South Africa and spread around the world. Uh, I know uh, your impact was quite considerable. You're in Northern Ireland, the Middle East, Cyprus. Uh, the United States was, in a sense, an afterthought, was it? A to- total afterthought. Not that we didn't hope to end up there someday, um, but I would say somewhat wrongfully, we focused on real war-torn countries, right, that had experienced... And we're experiencing uh, uh, unrest, war, um, and, and massive division as our first attempt to see if the program was going to work. I think it came to us pretty quickly that America, and I'll tell some stories about this, but America was in probably more need for this program than so many of these other countries where we've spent so much time and energy. Uh, Mandela, I don't know how, but he, he found out about your event. Uh, he's, of course, the winner of the Nobel Prize, perhaps. 20th century's most remarkable, bravest man. How did Mandela come across um, uh, 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 your uh, your uh, Peace Players initiative and, and how did he change it? So we were really early stage startup organization and we were running out of money. Um, that seven or $8,000 were just about out of. We were hustling as hard and fast as we could to raise other funds. Um, and me and a uh, one of the, our other coaches and managers would go up to Johannesburg and we would talk to anybody that would listen. We would tell the story looking for money. And we had come across the Nelson Mandela Foundation and the Ma- Nelson Mandela Children's Fund. And we went and pitched and they told us that it was a long shot, that it would never really happen, that we had no chance of getting President Mandela's funds, that he was too committed in so many other places. And unexpectedly, one morning, he had this phone call from his office saying that not only is he going to give us the largest grant that our program has ever gotten, but he's a huge believer in the power of sports to unite. And he wants to do everything in his power to um, propel the, the program forward faster than we could have ever on our own. So we went from like no credibility or very little credibility to Nelson Mandela's name and money behind us. And I think that was the beginning of the tipping point, Andrew, where the floodgates really began to open. We became a very real organization. Our staff in South Africa went from, I don't know, 30, 40 to over 100 uh, very quickly. We were invited to replicate the model in the Middle East and in Cyprus. Our Northern Ireland program grew significantly. And then we just were invited to continue to replicate the program around the world. And I think that it was Mandela's name and credibility behind us that was the beginning of that, uh, yeah, that, that real credibility to move the program forward. Tibo, you describe yourself, or your website at least describes yourself as a husband, well, talk about that perhaps a little bit later, uh, passionate speaker, which you clearly are, humble author. I'm not sure whether it's good to be a humble author, uh, but above all else, a social entrepreneur. Were you always drawn to social entrepreneurship while you were in school? I mean, your life has been one series of chapters or a series of chapters of social entrepreneurship. You seem to be the kind of guy who had you come out to Silicon Valley, you'd already be a multimillionaire, maybe even a billionaire. Were you never drawn to money? Look, uh, for me, I always 
felt that money would come as a result of following my passion and being in complete alignment with my purpose. It was never the thing that drove me. And I talk about, I think about this in the book, right? Um, I come from a, a, a decent amount of privilege. I grew up kind of uh, upper middle class, right? Um, and I always wanted to prove that I had it within me um, to go out and blaze my own trail. And you talked about leaving Baltimore and people, perhaps that was part of it. And I talked a little bit about that in the book, uh, escaping the city that knew, knew me so that I could put myself in uncomfortable situations to kind of grow, uh, grow past what I thought my potential was in a, in a, in a city like Baltimore, where I'd spent so much time. And yeah, I think that I've always been in pursuit of reimagining, I call it industries, right? Reimagining things the way the world's known and flipping them upside down where we're more focused on our purpose than our profit. And as much as I talk about that in the book, the profit is critical, right? You cannot run a for-profit company um, and have a, a, um, a social purpose behind it. If you're not making money, if you're not able to keep the lights on, if you're not able to keep everybody paid. So I think the intersection between those two are, are fascinating. Um, but I have always been in, in deep search for my purpose um, and aligning myself every step of the way with the careers that I've, that I've been able to have. Thibaut, um, we showed a slide earlier. People are listening. You won't see this slide. Uh, one referring to Joe Biden and his arguments about laying out the infrastructure agenda during his stop in Baltimore. Biden, of course, is intimate with Baltimore and Baltimore intimate with Biden. Why not government service, Tebow, rather than social entrepreneurship? Um, we'll, we'll talk after the break about your involvement with the Obama administration and your real estate initiatives. But why not just go into government? Why become a social entrepreneur? Look, I think the private sector is the one that's going to move the needle, right? I, I don't think it's government. Um, I, I, I've never seen it work in any of the dozens or so countries that I've lived in over my life. Um, what about the New Deal, Tebow? What about infrastructure? What about the, uh, the the Scandinavian or Northern European model of a government that takes care of its less fortunate? I love the idea behind it. I, I do. I just think that in the private sector and being able to move nimbly uh, is is the way to uh, to bring about massive lasting change. Who are your social entrepreneurial heroes? Who are the models that you're trying to emulate? So I'm a huge fan of uh, Wes Moore, who's a, a brother of mine. Um, he, uh, I'm convinced he's gonna be president someday, but he started on the social entrepreneurial path and journey. Um, he's a best-selling author, wrote se several incredible books. Yeah, I think he blurbed your book, didn't he? He was the he wrote the the foreword for for my yeah. book. Um, Why? The, Tell me a little bit about Wes. What's the big deal about him? I think he's just the complete package, right? He uh, he had society statistically would have said he had very little chance of making it, right? Um, and not only did he make it, but he was able to African put American guy, of course, from the other side of the tracks from yourself. Yep. Um, was able to get a, a Nobel, um, not a Nobel Peace Prize, um, a, a Fulbright scholarship, right? Um, and uh, went down that path, served in the uh, Air Force. Uh, and I'm sorry, it was a Marine, uh, wor worked on Wall Street, and then took, you know, years and years of experience in a number of different areas, 
and came back and put it all to work, um, kind of reimagine, reimagining the for, the private sector and some initiatives that he's launched. And it's been really neat to see, see those things come to life as well. Thibaut Mannequin, the author of Larger Than Yourself, a book about your social entrepreneurial life. Um, we're going to take a break, uh, Thibaut, now. We'll be back in about 90 seconds. And after the break, I want to talk uh, not just about the book, but specifically about your initiatives in terms of making Baltimore a better place, a fairer place, a juster place. So hold on, everyone. We'll see you here in a couple of minutes. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it. But I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keenon. Hello, everybody. Again, we are back with Thibaut Mannequin, the author of Larger Than Yourself. He's one of Baltimore's leading social entrepreneurs, if not the leading entrepreneur. One of the the local uh, magazines, Thibaut, uh, recently suggested that you are eternally optimistic. Do you take that as a compliment or a, or a critique? A uh, huge compliment. I, uh, I, uh, I com completely agree. I think that there's one way to go through life. Uh, and um, that's to understand that if all of the no's and can'ts that are going to be thrown at you are only there to make you stronger and propel ideas forward and make you think about them a little bit differently. Um, but there's always well, your, your new book. Um, it's your first book, Larger Than Yourself, is certainly oozing with optimism. It's, it's, it's quite a read and a very encouraging read. As I said, there's a narrative in the book, um, Tibold. You first, you left Baltimore, you went around the world, you made a name for yourself as a social entrepreneur, building this remarkable organization, bridging divisions through sports. And then you came back to address perhaps the biggest issue as you recognize in your life, which is the injustice, the inequality, the problems with 
um, with Baltimore, your home city. Um, you joined uh, the Obama White House uh, and you were supposed to be winning the future. Uh, in your work with Obama and Baltimore, how were you trying to win the future? So I think I need to back up and kind of set the stage for this next stage in my life. And especially as it relates to Baltimore, I, as you know, I lived around the world in some very divided countries. And I came back in 2006 unexpectedly. And I ended up in West Baltimore in my car on the corner of Pennsylvania and North Avenue, the intersection that nine years later in 2015 would be the epicenter of the Freddie Gray uprising. This is a part of town that I've been made to believe, made to believe my whole life that I wasn't welcome in and that I wouldn't be safe in. Well, was it a very uh, black part of town, African-American part of town? Yep, it was, it's uh, it, the Baltimore's known. There's a um, there's a book talk that talks about the the black butterfly and the white L. So I was in the black butterfly part of Baltimore. Um, statistically, one of the probably most dangerous and deadly uh, air, zip codes in the in the country. Um, and I had of those 300 homicides in Baltimore. I'm guessing a number of them would have been in that area. Yep. Um, and as afraid as I was in that moment, what I had learned from my experience around the world was that we have to push ourselves out of our comfort zones. We have to get out of our bu bubbles if we're really going to make change. So I got in my car and I started walking, Andrew, and I had two realizations in the moment. The first was that our country, and particularly my city of Baltimore, are more divided than all of these so-called war-torn countries and cities where I've just spent so much time and energy. We have an inability to have open and honest conversations with people who don't look and feel like us. And I saw it as a ticking time bomb. If something wasn't done to address it, it was going to continue to explode, right? And we've been seeing that. Jeez, and with this, uh, essentially, we've done so many shows on racism. Recently, we had Theodore R. Johnson on the show about the, the, the core problem of America of, of racism. He's a local boy, too. Um, is it about racism, the problems with Baltimore, essentially, Tibor? Yeah, it's deep-rooted here. Um, and it's the racism, it's the inequalities, the segregation, um, going as far back as, uh, as far back and further than the, than the civil war. Um, Baltimore just, uh, uh, hasn't been able to move past that. Hasn't figured out how to wait a, a good way to have the, the honest conversations and be, begin to, to move the narrative and, and move the tide on it. So. The second realization that I had walking around the neighborhood that day was that real estate, the control and ownership of land is the most powerful connected industry on the planet. It touches every single one of us, every single moment of every single day, whether we're aware of it or not. But even with that power and connectivity, and this is where Baltimore comes in, historically, real estate has done more to divide us than actually bring us together. So yeah, like this I, I was reading the book and it occurred to me that you're very much in sync with Simon Winchester. He has a new book out. He was on the show recently called Land, which is about land as both the cause and a consequence of the profound inequality of modernity. So uh, again, uh, land, real estate, inequality, Baltimore. What did that trigger, Tibor? What initiative for you? So uh, I talked a little bit earlier about the importance that our generation has to reimagine industries, take things no matter how rooted they might feel and how hard they might feel to, to shift and flip them upside down. So for us in that moment, I had the idea to launch this company called Seawall came, which was to launch a real estate company that tried to reimagine the real estate industry so that buildings actually were used to empower communities, unite cities and help to launch really powerful ideas. 
Yeah, and so you've got the website up right there. And yeah, we and have again Seawall exists to reimagine the real estate industry as we know it. So would it be fair to say that you became a, a kind of a social real estate developer? Yeah, absolutely. Is that what Seawall is? An attempt to 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 reinvent ownership real estate in Baltimore to right so many of these historic wrongs. Yeah, that that's that's the exact concept behind the company that we launched. Uh, you know, f- too often developers or even municipalities go in and they tell the neighborhood what it is they're going to build for them, right? And we wanted to do it the other way around. We wanted to make sure that all of the projects that we did were as a result of the communities that we were working in asking for whatever it was that they that they felt that they needed. Um, and then the end users, right? The people who would be living and working in the building, having an active seat at the table and helping to dream up what was getting created as well. And for us, that was the way to begin to change the narrative. And when did you begin? When did you found Seawall? Uh, 15 years ago. So 2006, 2007, something like that. So how did you ago. get into the Obama administration? Was This, this was a Seawall initiative that you were working for the Obama team on reforming uh, Baltimore? So um, we got a call. I got a call from the Obama administration uh, recognizing me and and our company as a champion of change, which was a, you know, they had selected several champions of changes throughout the country. And they invited us down to the, to DC to, you know, celebrate and be recognized for the work that we were doing, which felt different than I guess uh, what, what others were doing. So uh, I didn't actually work for the administration, just was recognized by them. What are you most proud about, Seawall? Uh, when you go to the website, development, empower, you talk about um, inclusion, anti-racism and equity commitment, diversity, a lot of the language you find on many different social entrepreneurial websites. What have you actually accomplished over the last 15 years? Give me one or two ac- concrete accomplishments that you're really proud of that you feel have changed Baltimore as a city? Yeah, so look, uh, in 15 years, we've done almost a quarter billion dollars worth of development, right? Which is a lot. Uh, That's a know, lot. We, yeah, we said we set out, we thought our first project was gonna be a little two or $300,000 row home conversion. And our first project unexpectedly was the tw- a $20 million conversion of a 150 year old vacant tin can manufacturing facility in a part of Baltimore where people said we would never be able to develop anything that no one would live or work in. And we didn't listen to that narrative. And collectively with the end users in the community, we created the country's first center for educational excellence, which is discounted apartments for teachers and collaborative space for nonprofits who are focused on kids and education. We are huge believers in the kind of saying that there isn't a greater investment than in the future generation. Um, and that our unsung heroes are anybody focused on kids and education. And we, we thought that if we could play some small part in rolling out the red carpet for those people doing the hardest work in our cities, um, then maybe, just maybe, they would do better in the classroom. They'd have people to cry with at night and keep them committed to, to showing up every day. In their, in and their and how does sense. your business work? You're, you're a nonprofit, is that correct? No, that's the thing. We're a for-profit, right? Like I'm not a huge fan of the traditional nonprofit model. I think that that is something that uh, our my parents' generation relied heavily on. But I think today we have a responsibility to launch for-profit entities um, that can make money, 
but at the same time can have massive, massive social impact. It's a, it's a blend, right? Like when you, if you look at our, our balance sheet and our numbers on a project, like the one I just described to you, it's called Miller's court, the first center for educational excellence. We probably leave hundreds of thousands of dollars of cash flow on the table every year as a business decision to take care of teachers and nonprofits. Right. Um, we certainly could change our minds, um, but that wouldn't be in keeping or in line with the kind of work and the kind of projects that really just get us out of bed every morning. It's all quite inspiring. But on the other hand, the problems of Baltimore remain the same. You still have 100 homicides this year. You still have all the other all the problems that you know we associate with the wire. Perhaps, as you say, it's not quite the wire. But you haven't dramatically changed, not you, but social entrepreneurs haven't dramatically changed Baltimore. Don't we need significant government initiative to, to really profoundly change city life? We had um, David Cutler on the show recently. He had co-authored a new book with Ed Glazer about the future of the city. Uh, Cutler was in charge of Obamacare. You may have bumped into him in Washington, D.C. in the Obama years. And he says that government and the state need to really re-architect city life. Do you disagree with Cutler? No, I think that's uh, I think that's really important. And 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 look, Baltimore's Baltimore's got a lot stacked against it, right? We're on our third mayor in three or four years at this point, um, and you know we're also famous for corruption within our mayors. You know, we had a mayor a few years go to jail for stealing business cards. We had another mayor, mayor go to jail for illegally selling books that never got published. And, um, you know, now I think we've got a, a nice, solid young mayor in Brandon Scott um, that is uh, that has got his hands full, um, but is trying to bridge the, the private sector with the government and the nonprofit sector uh, to to yeah, to, to, to move the needle on a on a very complicated conversation. Tybold, um you have this new book out, as I said, you're on the show to discuss, Larger Than Yourself, uh, Reimagining Industries, Lead with Purpose and Growing Ideas into a Movement. Um, it's, it, 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 it brims with your optimism, but you describe yourself as a humble author. It's the first book. I'm not sure whether any author really wants to be humble. Why the book? Why pour your energy into a book? Why not put that energy into Baltimore itself? Look, I think I'm able to do both, right? Um, and uh, I have always known that I've had a book in me. And I think it really became clear. I've had the opportunity to give speeches around the world. And I always talk about what I for me, which were a series of principles that I use to bring ideas to life, right? Um, and I'd get off stage and people would come and, and ask me about those principles as if they were a foreign language. And to me, they were second nature. And as I'd start to reflect on it, I started taking notes. The notes became paragraphs. The paragraphs became chapters. The chapters became sections, and uh, before I knew it, I had a, a you know three hundred page manuscript. Did you enjoy the writing process? I would a guy, I would guess a guy like you, an action man who has traveled around the world, changing things dramatically, might have found writing a book a bit frustrating, a bit slow. I loved the process um, because it forced me to dive deep into who I am. Right, writing a book, especially the way that I have, is a very vulnerable experience. 
Uh, I'm not sure that everybody's going to like it or appreciate what I said um, or, or agree with me. And, uh, you know, I'm a bit of a reserved guy. So for me, it was really putting myself out there. I also learned an incredible amount about the, yeah, the, the different, the difference in these, in these principles that we've observed around how to grow a small idea and to turn it into a powerful and impactful movement. And, uh, the, you know, the, the book for me was, uh, it was a real learning opportunity. You describe yourself, as I said, as a husband, father, humble author, passionate speaker, and social entrepreneur. I checked out your website. You have an interview with your wife, uh, Lola Manikin. You said she's from Brazil. She looks slightly Brazilian. Um, how does a social entrepreneur divide the public and the private? Do you sometimes carry your social entrepreneurial instincts into the private realm of the family as a father and as a husband? Is that dangerous or is it quite inspiring? Yeah, it's a, it's a balance, right? I didn't really have it growing up, which is, I think, one of the reasons that I saw, have sought it so much as in my adult life. What do you life. mean you didn't have it growing up? You didn't have what? I, I, didn't, uh, I didn't have uh, parents that helped to push me out of my bubble. Right. You know, maybe my mom to a certain extent, but it was it wasn't something that we talked about. Um, and my experience living around the world and bursting through the bubble that I grew up in really helped me understand that when I'm when I, if I was ever blessed to have kids, which I am, I have a 10 and a 12 year old now. I wanted to make sure that they also understood that the world was a massive place, beautiful place filled with diverse views and perspectives and ideas that, uh, that it's our responsibility to listen uh, and be able to deeply listen. And so I've done a lot of that with, uh, with my kids, um, making sure that, uh, that, that, that we're participating in initiatives throughout the city, making sure that they're riding shotgun with me um, uh, in all parts of Baltimore. So you um, think that your message as a parent about larger than being larger than yourself and your book, Larger Than Yourself, the book that's just, that's just out. Are they the same? Are you teaching the world what you've already taught your or tried to teach your kids? Yeah, look, I feel like I'm a, maybe a little bit better at teaching the world than at teaching my kids. Well, well you... join the club. It's, <laughs> teaching kids, is, I know as a parent, is impossible. Well, it's, it's interesting, right? Because... You know, you, when I remember our first son and then our second son and you get these little things in your arm, you're like, what an honor to be able to shape the life of a little human being. And what I quickly realized, Andrew, was that these little beings were going to shape my life more than way more than I'll ever shape theirs. But mm. it was the ability to let go and realize that it was going to take a massive village to raise these kids. And I talk about not having pride of ownership and authorship and things, right, that it is important when we're bringing ideas to life that everybody that the idea touches feels that same sense of pride of ownership and authorship in what's getting created. And the same thing goes for kids. And me and my wife were very intentional about that from the very beginning, um, that while we were going to play a significant role in raising these kids, it was going to take dozens, hundreds, thousands of others that we were going to trust throughout the process to bring our kids what they needed at that moment in time. And it's been neat to see 
them grow as little human beings, right? And like them lead with their heart, right? Not with their head. Um, and, you know, my wife's to thank for, 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 for a lot of that. But yeah, you, you know, it's the, there, there are two, two ways to do things. Um, uh, you can uh, lecture and you can try to explain to somebody how you think it should be done, which in my experience never works. Um, or as the case for parenting, right? We must lead by example. Um, and trust that those lessons are going to seep into the hearts of our kids and shape who they are more than us yelling at them, more than us getting disappointed because they're not meeting our expectations, because they're saying things they shouldn't say at that age where we said the same exact things. Mm. And so I think that's been like a huge learning lesson for me in life is, um, is, the, is the kids, right? Because they are our greatest creation. Um, and, and our hardest one and probably our least perfect. Um, Tibor, I, I did enjoy the book, Larger Than Yourself. And I think one of the reasons is because you're very vulnerable in the book and you're very vulnerable in this interview. You're not just spouting off and not involving yourself. So congratulations on the book. You're talking to me from Baltimore, of course, your home, your project, your love. Uh, what, in, what else in addition to... Um, larger than yourself should people be reading in late november 2021 well when you finish larger than yourself if you're looking for more books to pick up um a, a good buddy of mine i think it was on your podcast recently andrew alec ross wrote the raging 2020s yeah alec was just on the show he's an old friend um and he introduced us actually uh alec has quite a radical take on capitalism and companies i assume you're on the same page as him he, his message is so relevant today. Um, and uh, his book, for those who haven't read, is, is, should be a must read right now. Um, he's another Baltimore boy, right? He's a boy. Yeah, he run, divides he, his time between Baltimore and Italy. He does. He, he, uh, he ran for governor of the state of Maryland uh, the, the last uh, or two elections ago. And I give him credit for, for doing it. I saw him yesterday and he told me that he got his ass kicked, which he did, um, but he went for it. And that's more than mo many of us will ever be able to say. Um, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's so many other books, but, uh, my friend, uh, Wes Moore that I talked about has some great mm. books out there and he had one, I think come out last year called, uh, five days, which is kind of Baltimore's reckoning during the Freddie Gray five days during the Freddie Gray uprising, um, t told in a way that, uh, you wouldn't really know if you just watched CNN or Fox news, um, this goes deep into uh, into that uprising and what it meant to our city and the people uh, and the people who were closest to it. Well, this your book, um, your new book, Larger Than Yourself, goes deep, not just into your own life, but into the challenges for social entrepreneurs in changing America. It's a brave, honest book. Congratulations, Tibor. Um, and uh, I, it'd be great to have you actually back on the show with Alec and perhaps... Um, uh, Wes Moore, it'd be really interesting to talk more broadly about the challenges facing a, an American city like Baltimore. So keep well, keep fighting, uh, and thank you again, and congratulations on the new book. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you for the platform you've created for all of us to share our ideas. Thanks so much for watching this Keenon show. I hope you were inspired in some way. I hope you found it interesting. And if you want more of these kinds of shows, you need to subscribe uh, to the podcast uh, on the Apple or, or, or CastBox or Spotify platforms, all 
major podcast platforms carry the Keen On Show. Or you can also watch live uh, on my Twitter page, uh, my LinkedIn network, uh, or on LitHub's uh, Facebook Live page. Um, I also hope you'll decide to follow me on Substack. Uh, I have uh, a newsletter on Substack in which I develop and expand on a lot of the themes we discuss in the uh, Keen On show. And I hope you'll also follow up with me personally, uh, perhaps uh, to give suggestions for future shows. You might email me at a.keen at me.com. Or you may also email me with suggestions about potential guests. I'm very open, uh, very eager, in fact, to have requests, ideas of, of people with interesting new books and projects which I need to talk about. So thanks so much again for, for, for watching Keen On. I'm thrilled that you're a member of our community and I'll look forward to hearing from you in the not too distant future.